First of all, you got no jobs. Skis need wax. Who are these sick people? Our pets' heads are falling off. Ten thousand feet, you know, here we are. Hello and welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. If you have been following track and field news, you're probably well aware of Hobbs Kessler, the Michigan high school phenom who just recently set the um, high school record in the 1500 with a 334. His time is now faster than the newly minted NCAA 1500-meter record, 334.68 or something like that. They're about four-tenths apart, I know. Yared Nagus of Notre Dame just recently broke that record at the AACC Championships. And now just a couple weeks later, a high schooler not only betters that time, uh, or not only betters the high school time, but betters the collegiate time. So currently, Hobbs Kessler, who started his junior year during the pandemic last spring as a 424-miler, He's since run 357 indoors, and now this 334, kind of the marquee performances. He was on the Sidious Mag podcast um, just recently, a few days ago, uh, talking about his training, his progression, uh, his friendship with University of Michigan, former coach, coach Ron Warhorst. Is he a former coach? I guess I should have done my research there. But basically, Hobbs Kessler trains currently with Mason Furlick the former 2016 NCAA steeplechase champion, and Nick Willis, the New Zealand miler, who has been running sub four miles basically since 1998. I think he I think he has a 17 or 18 year streak. Nick Willis won a medal at the 2008 Olympics. I think he also won a medal at Rio. Um, and I, I think it's his 08 or his 2012 Olympic medal, one of the two that uh, should be gold really in terms of uh, doping allegations that have... Uh, are, are either recently have come out as being confirmed or, or are suspected. But but point being, Nick Willis, a former University of Michigan runner, who I think is based out of Michigan at least uh, for large portions of the year, but a New Zealand athlete who's been competing at, the, at a world elite level for almost two decades now. I guess maybe a little more than two decades. But um, Hobbs Kessler has been training with that group, also training with his high school team. He sort of mentioned that um, he does work out with Furlick and Willis and one other guy, Mitch Stanisvik, I think. Uh, no, that's not right. Uh, Mitch Stanisvik is the, is the Oregon guy. Someone else from Michigan. I'm just doing this on the top of my head. Sorry, people. Uh, but anyway, yeah, no, it it will be researched. It's still good enough to take. It, it it's it's not going to take away from the point. Uh, so he is he's still kind of interesting. You know, he's a relatively normal high school kid in the sense his parents both coach the high school team so they work alongside him to adjust his program to um you know he can be with the team compete with the team he goes to regular high school meets he also he does a lot of his hard days with the the training group i just mentioned i think it's called the very nice track club that's not a joke that's actually the name of their team his parents are are fairly accomplished runners his mother won the 1992 olympic trials marathon um or competed in it. Yeah, I didn't win it. No, I'm thinking of um, the Klecker kid that I just heard uh, as well. I think his was 1992 or 1996. But uh, very good athlete uh, in her own right. And Hobbs Kessler said that her his parents were or are his running role models. Kind of cool. Also about Hobbs Kessler, just a side note. Apparently, he's world class in climbing, rock climbing. So he scaled some extremely difficult category uh uh, ledge in Kentucky or something like that. Uh, so he wants to be the first person to do like a five one five, something like that. The digits, you know, some some sort of barrier that's very difficult, and run a sub four minute mile. He said they're both kind of comparable within the sport, so he thinks it'd be cool to do both. And he does still rock climb a bunch. Apparently, his coach encourages him to do that. Um. So anyway, the Hans Kessler thing, him breaking Alan Webb's. Um, Alan Webb was a former uh, 1500 high school record holder. He broke Webb's time, I think, by 4.7 seconds. He also broke Jim Ryan's 336 um, U20 uh, record. Jim Ryan, though, still has probably the most amazing high school time that's still out there, and that's his 351 mile. I'm sorry, not high school, but junior record. 
In fact, so here I've got it uh, pulled back up here What's on Let's Run.com talking about comparing the two. So Alan Webb ran 338, uh, 338.26, which was in the midst of his legendary 353 mile. That, of course, broke the high school record set by Jim Ryan. But Jim Ryan's USU 20 record was 336.1. Now, uh, and Tom Kessler's time was 334.36. So I just look at up Jim Ryan again, though. Jim Ryan ran 351.3 in 1966. That is the, or it was the number one time, well, it was a world record at the time uh, as a 19-year-old, but it's it's the U-20 American record in the mile. So Kessler's time converts to about a 351, it says, uh, but Jim Ryan's 351 performance. Still just, just putting that into perspective... Um, the greatest high school performance of all time. You still almost got to give it to Jim Ryan. And currently, right right now, if you look at the World Athletics website, Jim Ryan's 351, in case you're curious, his 351.3 is the 10th fastest U20 time in world history. But, and it's kind of a big but here, The so the um, the t- all the times in front of him, the first seven are Kenyan athletes. Uh, oftentimes, the ages there are definitely disputed. No no question disputed there. Um, now, number one is only 349.29. So even at that, it's one, two full seconds in front of Jim's 351. But if you took out all of those athletes, Jim Ryan, all the Kenyan athletes, Jim Ryan would be third behind an Ethiopian. Again, age questionable, uh, 351.26, only four hundredths a second faster is Samuel Tafara. And then an athlete from Qatar, Hazma Driach who ran 350.9. The Honestly, when I look at this, the athletes that I consider to be somewhat legit on this list, it would be right behind Jim Ryan is Jakob Ingebrigtsen, a 19-year-old who ran from Norway. He ran 351.3 just two years ago. So Jakob's a, obviously a huge talent. Um, he's one of my favorite middle distance distance runners. Uh, that's a legit time for sure. Um, interesting on here is Graham Williamson. I actually haven't heard of that name, so that's kind of pathetic on my running side. A 19-year-old from Great Britain ran 353.15. So anyway, that's kind of from the world list. But Hobbs Kessler. And so I was thinking about this as I was listening to to him. He's kind of – he mentioned on the podcast that he was, um, you know, talking about next year. Is he going to go pro or is he going to stay committed to Northern Arizona where he's he's been headed? Um, And he said, you know, this is a situation that I wasn't really – wanting to be in and that's understandable you know where where you're so good you're better than the collegiate record before you're even in college like what do you have left to prove there in college um in running you your your opportunity to capitalize financially is so limited um so now there's this huge question mark of what to do and for a long time with whether it's Kessler or in the the last few years we've had some really interesting cases with Donovan Brazier um, Sammy Watkins the female 800 meter runner Donovan Brazier obviously American record holding the 800 Uh, Mary Kane semi-recent that's a little bit farther back Um, now with Caitlin Tuohy who is really you know kind of has even beaten Mary Kane's times all these athletes where you follow them and you go you know there's people pundits on either side kind of saying especially with females it gets pretty contested like you know, this person should go to college, do the development thing, um, or this person needs to go pro now because their their value's never been higher. I I definitely understand the argument from both sides. I think the reason this this debate even exists, and this will be kind of my unique take, but the reason this debate even exists is it really comes down to a foundational issue. Not surprised, right? Cedar Scare Podcast. That's why you tune into us, is we kind of bring the skeologian aspect to this. Um and I think I think for this, it's it's absolutely critical. The answer to this question only really can be found if we assess that foundational concept of what is true success and how do we define it here. Because I think if your concern in life and how you define if you did it well and did things right is how much you accumulate, whether it's wealth or fame, this decision becomes very, very dicey. Because we've seen examples of success, I think, in both ways. We've seen athletes who have decided to go pro, capitalized when their wealth was the highest, 
and that was a huge moneymaker for them. We've seen athletes who have taken that route and tried to capitalize when their value was sort of high, but their ultimate destruction led to uh, their career being over well before it should have been. And the, and the biggest example of that is probably Mary Kane, where you look at you know the greatest talent in distance running on par with Mary Kane when you look at 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old performances. And she decides to latch right on with the Nike Oregon Project out of high school. And, and now even she looks back and goes, oh man, th- this was a bad decision because of this or that. Um, but she she did not improve and develop in the way that you know people had hoped. She did not blossom. And now she's, well, how old would she be even now? It's been eight years, so what, 24 years old maybe? She should be in the, in the point of her career where right in the middle of her prime and she's been out of running for four years. She's, she hasn't been relevant for four years. She, she does still run. She's employed by Tracksmith and she's still a celebrity and a big name but has no running credentials whatsoever. Um, and, you know, you look at someone like Elise Cranny who kind of came out at a similar time. Now she went to Stanford, had a full career there and now is running in the 31s for the 10K. But she was, you know, a, a high school miler kind of competing at the same time as Mary Kane. Just an opposite thing. And that's not saying like, okay, you know, that means everyone should go to college. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is if you are going to play the dicey role of making your foundation for success just sheerly an accumulation, it's going to be very difficult to come up with what's the best option because you can't you can't predict the future obviously so let's say you know you're trying to give advice to Hobbs Kessler well now you're going to have to weigh this this the these choices like well and and again I'm operating if I, if my my foundation is is how do we capitalize your wealth right well Hobbs like your wealth potential in the sport of running that's kind of your potential is sort of what determines your contract size, um, the, that that anticipated value. You know, this this is unlike in the NFL or the MLB where you can accomplish something and then get rewarded financially. In running, the companies have to look at: Does this person have a three or four year potential uh, value for us? And that that's what makes it tricky. So now that Hobbs has, as a young person, demonstrated he could be the greatest generational talent since Jim Ryan. Um, the second you go to college and start running times that are at all slower, your value is going to drop. And in fact, even if you are maintaining that talent level, um, it's going to drop. So right now, Hobbs Kessler has the most bargaining power with a company if he decides to go pro. However, the flip side of that is if he goes pro and he um, is not able to develop and blossom because now in the pro environment, uh, you don't have the support system that's really developmentally appropriate for a 19, 20, 21, and 22-year-old, which is present in college, if you go to a good college. Um, if his development dwindles, you've now really only had a three- or four-year contract pro-running career, sort of like Mary Kane, where Mary Kane got one huge contract coming out of high school, and then because the situation did not lead to her continually improving and adding to her value— she was done and out. So again, this is where it just gets so complicated. You, you go, well, maybe the person needs to go to college because that'll help more in their long-term development. Well, what if that, um, that opportunity window for performance is so small and it's now? You, know, you, just, you can never possibly say what could be best. And I think that's what people try to do. They try to go, this athlete could do it, right? They're ready for the pros. They they um, are mature enough to handle it. They, they have this good coaching setup, this good community. It's going to be fine. So that's, that's going to that's gonna work out. Well, you just don't know. Like you might get injured for three years, you know, and now you've been injured for three years. You have no college background base. You've got nothing to go from. And the company goes, you don't have the same prodigy, talent, potential, future wealth value to us that you used to have. So sorry, tough luck. So... Uh, the, uh, and we've seen we we most recently saw in as far, um, from the boys' side, um, the runner that signed the big wasn't it supposedly a ten year contract with with Adidas. Um, his name's slipping my mind now. Let me let me look it up here. Drew Hunter. Drew Hunter. So Drew Hunter, born in nineteen ninety seven, so he's twenty three years old now. He um, really 
in similar fashion to Hobbs, Kessler kind of just blew up his last couple of years. Um, one, let's see, his high, some of his high school times, 7.59 in the 3K indoor record. He did, he ran 3.58 in the mile. Um, Hunter then waited two weeks for him. Oh, yeah, ran 3.57 again. So <laughs> he ran a 3.57 mile later. So uh, after 2016, he goes pro, signs a contract with Adidas, blah, blah, blah. And he has, he's had some good results, but, you know, in 2019, probably one of his better years, he won the indoor track and field championships in the two mile. Um, let's see, I'm looking here in 20, 2015, he was the U.S. junior runner up in the 1500. Then he ran at the U.S. outdoor track and field championships in 2017, placed 11th, ran in 2018, got sixth. So even look at it, 2018 to play six, that's, that would have been his, you know, sophomore year of college. So that's, that's really, his development is, is kind of going along. Okay. You know, really as a senior in college, he wins the indoor two mile and gets fifth in the 5k. Um, and the point, the point being, I guess, is it's, it's not super easy. You can't really access his, the, the nature of the contract, but he gets a 10 year contract. Supposedly, I think was the rumor with Adidas and that's a pretty good, guarantee of time <laughs> if you could secure that you know then financially you avoid some of these question marks maybe because your contract takes you through your 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 maybe athletic peak so this brings me to i guess i should come back here if if what i'm saying is the foundational aspect makes this a tricky uh, question which I, I do believe it does. Hopefully that kind of makes some sense that if if your goal is accumulating wealth or making sure you improve, it's just an impossible question. There's too many variables. And even if you say, well, we don't care about wealth, we just want to see like, we want to make sure this guy runs as fast as possible, you know, that that their, their, their talent is maximized. Well, it's still kind of an impossible question. Um, however, I think if you start to lean towards that, that latter uh, point, it does become more clear or at least higher the, the probability of success um, is in my opinion leaning more one way so let me back that up if you define it like we want to make sure sure that Hobbs Kessler maximizes his potential to the fullest okay um, we're not we're not too worried about money we'll, we'll worry about that later on down the road well I believe the answer becomes simpler and it's go to college the reason being that college provides the best uh, environment for a runner to develop most of the time and it's the most developmentally appropriate environment you have support system and coaches and assistant coaches and teammates that are in in your at your age kind of like high school too like this is why we don't just take middle school phenoms and stick them with the los angeles lakers to hang out with grown men who play in the nba you know like there's a point to have them surrounded by people their age who get them and and college you have to you still have the balance aspect of a normal life you're taking classes you have to manage things which i believe is again not not just important for the rest of life but it actually does affect your performance too you take out that 18 year old you go okay now you'll have to do is focus on running sounds really good on paper but um that's really not beneficial to their running career. So there, we could go to more specifics. I think about why that environment's better, and that's maybe more fun to debate about. Um, but I think, just broadly speaking, for I would say you know eighty-five to ninety percent of athletes, the best chance of development is within a college environment. And you might say, well, what if they just have no competition to push them? D1 colleges around, like there are, I mean, even with Hobbs Kessler coming in, right? He has the national record of the NCAA 1500. That doesn't mean he's he can't possibly be pushed in workouts and in competitions. Okay, for one thing, those other athletes are are right on his tail. You've got Cole Hawker. You've got Yard Nagus. These are athletes that could very easily destroy Hobbs Kessler in a heats and in a rounds and even in a final just a straight race. They're right there. So we don't, we don't really know where they're at either. Maybe Yard Goose is really a 332 guy that ran three, he ran 334 solo. So he might actually be a 332, 331 guy. So the, the point being, there's plenty of competition, but I would say even like you, you don't need to have someone or 10 people in front of you to push you to improve. Look at Klabo on the world cup stage. He, he is heads and heads and shoulders above others in in almost any race that he tries his very best at but the sheer depth of the Norwegian system keeps him 
fueling, you know, to train harder. Bolshanov, his competitor in Russia, keeps him training harder, and he he's still improving because of it. So there is enough there from a competitive standpoint to keep him hungry uh, for certain, and, and and that's that's a benefit. But um, I, I think that that that's that hopefully kind of solves that question. You know, like well, he he needs to have competition things to push him. It's like there's plenty of that in college. There's not really a runner that that can go, that will enter into college unless they you know typically the only ones I would say do are are like 25 year old Kenyans who are coming to the American system. You know, if they're coming in having run 1301 and they're already 25 years old, you know, like yeah, okay, the that that's because they're just in a different age bracket. You know, it that's different than an 18 year old who can run 1301. You see the difference? Like if you're 24, you run 1301, but you've been seasoned veteran in Kenya, like college might not really help you the competitive atmosphere of it because those peers aren't in your same spot. You don't, you're not going to be pushed by them in the same way. You know, uh, that depth aspect isn't going to matter as much when you're 18 coming in, you've got the fastest time in the country. Like Hobbs Kessler technically would, he's still got people breathing down his his back who are right there and, and they're a year younger or six months older or whatever. So I don't think that's that's something that, that should be considered as taking away. But but even backing beyond that, I think if you if you're thinking about uh, well, maybe I need to just dismantle all the all the potential objections, which is fine, because I think the other thing, you know, talking to even Bobby Cobb yesterday, he made this point when I was chatting with him and he said that you never really know the window of opportunity as an athlete. You, you, that window could be a two-year span. It could be a 10-year span. It could exist in just the state high school league. It could exist on a national st- stage, a World Cup stage. You never really know because you don't necessarily know what things in your environment are going to enable you to reach your highest level of performance, uh, whether it's teams, coaches, location, training. You don't really know if an injury might come in. You, you also don't really know about your competitor status. You know, like you might actually capitalize professionally because the second you go pro, um, your field is very weak. And so you can stand above, win a few races, secure some contracts. You know, so again, if, if your basis is financial, it again becomes so much more tricky. Like you should really be looking at the landscape. What if, if there were no milers in, in within five seconds of Hobbs Kessler on the pro ranks? Well, now from a financial standpoint, it seems like a pretty good idea to go pro because you're going to be the numero uno and you're going to be securing all those guaranteed victories. So, uh, but 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 if our if our goal is just development, I think you have to think more long term. So while there are windows of opportunity that are hard to know if they exist, and I see people going, well, isn't that a reason why a high schooler maybe could turn pro or should turn pro? You know, like a Mary Kane. Look, maybe maybe her age 16, 17 years were the best years, and she made the right call by going pro to maximize them. Okay, here's my here's my argument against that, and, it, and I think it's fairly sound. Well, it is true that, you know, we can't predict these windows and you might be the best at age 20. Um, It's also true that you might be the best at age 30. And I would say it's almost empirically, at least physiological, has not been disputed that the true range of your potential is somewhere in between those years. So 20 to 30 is when is the window of your prime. I know there's athletes who are who really are good before that and 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 can be very good after it. But what I'm suggesting is is you can't um even if you even if you're you run off the rails because you're hurt for all 4 years of college. You you can't come back at 22 or 23 once you're done with college and go, "Well, my best days are behind me." No, physiologically that's not true. Okay, it's not true. From 23 to 30, you're still in the prime of your career. You could you can absolutely find the maximum of your potential in that range. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So, yes, there are athletes that run their fastest when they're 19 or 20 years old. My argument would be there's no physiological reason that they couldn't have duplicated those times or run faster all the way up until the age of 30. I think once you get past the age of 30, you start to, we, we, it's a little bit of an unknown gray area. Like some people say, well, you know, the, the longer the distance, then these athletes have a chance and they can do well in it, blah, blah, blah. That, that might be true and all fine and dandy. What I would argue and what I would convince a Hobbs Kessler if I was recruiting him is, look, let's say you come here and you run for four years and you're hurt for three of them and you have just a dismal collegiate career. 
don't for a second think that your best days are behind you. Your best competitive years in this event are between the ages of 20 and 30. And this collegiate experience is just a, is just a step in your progress. Okay. And, and that's how I would recruit them is I would say, I would say something like that. Like I would say, look, Hobbs, you have to be ready. If you come to this school, I, I wouldn't come in and say, I think at this school, you have the best chance of running faster and faster times every year. I would not throw that guarantee at them. I would actually give them a challenge. I would say, look, no matter where you go, pro or collegiate, no matter what your choice is, ultimately you are going to have to wrestle with the fact and, and become okay with the fact that you might spend a year where your times don't get faster. You need to think about doing the right things, the process, and maximizing your potential. That needs to be your goal is always um, extracting the maximum amount of talent from you. And you don't really know what that is. Your max talent might only be 332. It might be 325. The thing is, is don't absorb yourself with the external improvements because that's almost a surefire way to ultimately break you down. You won't be able to survive if that's all you cons- that consumes your mind. You need to be consumed with taking everything that happens to you, whether it's an injury, a failure, a setback, or a victory, all as a part of the, prog- the, the process of being better. And so always be absorbing, always being growth mindset laden, um, approaching everything like that. And I would say in my program, that's what I can promise I will give you is I will support you in a way so that you see everything that happens to you, whether it is injury or success or failure as just another step in being a better version of Hobbs Kessler. And we're going to find out where that leads us. We're not going to worry about making sure that, well, by his sophomore year, he needs to be 332, by junior year, 330, by senior year, 327. We're not going to concern ourselves with that because we don't know the trajectory of your development, but what we, but what, and we can't control it. But what we can control is how we react to all the things that do happen, and we can control the efforts, the steps that we are taking forward. Um, now, that would, be, that would be what I would do, you know? <laughs> Um, and, and I think the other thing is to think about is if you go back to even this physiological standpoint, I would maybe also bring this just more raw, if that's too philosophical for him, you know, let's, let's say you go to college again for four years and it's just awful. Like you don't improve here. Just know that in, in, in a sense, you can't lose from a maximize your potential standpoint, even if you leave at 22 and you haven't gotten better at all. Okay, so if you come here to my college and you do terrible and you don't improve a single step, you're still you're still leaving at 22. You're 22 years old. You've got eight more years to develop your potential. So that would be the thing. Now, the only risk of doing that is that you lose out on millions of dollars that you could have earned between the ages of 18 and 22. So you see how some of you are calling that's a massive risk. Well, it is a massive risk Is that if that's your foundation for success. But if your foundation for success is to maximize who you are as a person, don't worry. The money will follow if you are actually that good. So if Hob Kessler is willing to bank on himself, you know, don't worry about the money. You're going to be fine. If you, if you end up leaving here and, and you know, you'll be happier because you'll know you did everything you could at each stage of the game to be the best you could. If you leave here, take the money, and then you only improve a couple of seconds, you know what You know what Hobbs Kessler is going to wonder? I wonder if I would have been better if I had gone to college. That's the profound thing he would have to wrestle with. So if you follow that, so, you know, if he, if he leaves, if he leaves high school and goes pro and maybe improves two, three seconds, let's say he runs 331, say he makes an Olympic team, and then when he's 23, he's burned out, he's injured, he's done. He's going to look back and go, I wonder if I had taken the college route, even, if, even though I would have bypassed that initial money and that initial success, what if it would have led to greater things in ages 25, 26, 27, 28? Because I took the developmentally probable, most beneficial st- step. So again, does this mean universally that collegiate scene is the is the is the best step, the next step in everyone's career? No, but I do think it is the the highest probability of being successful. I will on this point, you know, since it's kind of the focus of the show, 
highlight a couple of um, devil's advocate positions where I think this does run counter, and that is uh, pro basketball. So in, in pro basketball, I, my my decision changes, but my philosophy doesn't. I think in basketball, the difference in wealth making um, decision from going to college versus going pro is so much astronomically. It's so it's on a different scale completely. So you're talking, you know, the Drew Hunters, he makes $2 million for a 10 year contract or something, you know? Okay, fine. That's a lot of money to a high school kid. How about, you know, 80, $90 million for like a three year contract? <laughs> Like that's a lot different. And I know not rookies maybe aren't making that right away. But if a rookie's making even fifteen or twenty million per year plus some endorsements, which if you're going from high school to the NBA, you're gonna you're gonna be raking in endorsement money. So you actually probably are looking at more like thirty to forty million per year. Um that's that's life changing money. More life changing than two million over ten years. It really is. And so you might be thinking, well, now, have you changed that foundation? No, and here's why. I would say if your if your philosophy, you know, of I want to maximize my potential applies to your life as a whole, not just the sport, then taking the money in this instance might actually follow in line with that because you can open the doors for things outside of sports. So even if you take that 40 mil or 50 mil per year and you are a bust in the NBA and you're out by the time you're 21, you now have enough money to open up 7,000 different doors to go maximize your potential somewhere else. Maybe you go to college. Maybe you start a foundation. Maybe you become an entrepreneur. Maybe you invent stuff. Maybe you decide to write. Maybe you decide to do podcasts, you know, (laughs) things like that. So it's life-changing money and therefore allows you to maximize your potential in an area other than sports. Whereas in running, it's not that. It's not enough. So you're going to have to, once you, if you become a bust (laughs) and you don't get that second contract, you're going to have to figure out what's next for your life. And it might be going back to college anyway, usually, you know, just being a no- more normal person, to be honest. Um, and the other thing is there, I think an injury in running is awful and it's, it's a setback. In basketball it, and in football too, it can eliminate a person's ability to, to garner that first round draft pick status. It can be life-changing financially in the other direction. So I think the risk of going to college for two, three, four years and just being injured and then not being a top 10 draft pick that you're talking about flushing down 20, 30, 40 million dollars immediately by by being picked out of of the first round. So I think, again, it's not that I've changed my, my philosophy there. It's that it just means you maximize your full potential in all of your life and that money can open those doors for that. One last thought on this topic for this show, and um, if you have any thoughts of your own, you know, of course, again, you can comment on this post, follow us on Anchor, Anchor Podcast, you can comment on Facebook as well, where we're, we we will share this with your thoughts or questions or things to contemplate, and we'll try and bring it up on the next show if you, if you um, would like us to. Uh, one last thing, skiing. Where, where does skiing fit in? And I'm wondering if this is, I don't know enough, I don't think really to necessarily comment on this uh, per se, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of growing the sport collegially, collegially in America, but I, I'll be honest in saying, I don't necessarily know the pros and cons of that in terms of like overall pipeline um, effect. I would imagine that it could hurt to have like a really awesome, very deep collegiate scene in cross-country skiing. I know right now, yep, like NCA is just kind of a mess. I feel like in a lot of different areas, but all the different divisions. But you know, ski programs are are on the chopping block constantly, and it's it's just kind of sad. And it's a, it's a hard thing to sustain at a school. So it's like, well, wouldn't it be great if there were seventy five or two hundred NCAA collegiate cross country ski teams? I would say, yeah. How could that not? How could that be a bad thing? And um, obviously, you need a lot of athletes who are. Are, are deciding, oh, well, yeah, obviously I'm going to go to college first. I think in general, most of our best high school athletes are going to college. Like the Jesse Diggins route is a little bit more rare. Um, and I would say 
you know, if if my son or daughter was going to forego a collegiate opportunity to try out for Team USA in the sport of cross-country skiing, I would have them look to what Jesse Diggins did. I think it's worked out very well for her in a lot of different areas. Um, but she had herself set up very responsibly. You know, she had the full ride at NMU. She took the gap year and wanted to kind of see like, hey, let's see what this is like. Um, and she was, I think looking at it very wisely on probably, okay, maybe I should go to college. You know, maybe I want that experience and, and, oh, okay, maybe I handled it right. I can do the pro thing and go all in. Obviously she decided after the first year, like we're going to go the pro route, you know? And, but I think that was really smart of her to have that all, all the pieces in, in place of, um, kind of like, if this happens, I'll do this. If this happens, I'm going to go here. I have options. I'm not just going to be drowning if it all falls apart. Unfortunately, I feel like that is kind of how it happens in running, you know, so I don't know how much bargaining is at the table with like a Hobbs Kessler, you know, like where he, he can't really go and say, okay, like uh, I'm going to try pro running for a year and then come back to college and then I'll do that. Like, and that, honestly, maybe this is what needs to happen in the NCAA. Like, why don't they just take away the rule about pros competing? I know, you're, I know you think that's blasphemous, but let's think about it. Like, it's for the betterment of the kids, right? So let's just say Hob Kessler turns pro, he tries it for a year, he comes back to college because, you know, pro wasn't right, he wants to have that college experience. So he goes and he wins a few national titles because of it. Like, what would have happened is he would have won a bunch of national titles had he just gone there anyway. What difference does it make that he goes and gets some support for some years? Who cares if he if he gets way better because he went pro for uh, for a year and came back to NCAA. Like this is kind of the flexibility almost where I feel like the NCAA needs to care about athletes. Same thing with Diggins, right? Like let's say she, let's say she decides to, to compete, which actually, Oh, this is the thing with Diggins. that was unique, right? I think her gap year, she did not accept any money so that she could keep that um, option to go to college. Like that's pretty awesome. And pretty massive sacrifice. Uh, I mean, how hard it'd be if you, how, how incredibly excited would you be as like a 19 year old, 18 year old, you win some national title, you've got like a $10,000 prize or whatever, which, yeah, it's not a lot of money, but it's a lot of money for a kid who, you know, ski races and they got to go, Oh, I can't accept this because, you know, I want to be able to have that option for college. So, you know, maybe Hobbs Kessler can do that, you know, and, and work that in, I guess, obviously if he signs a pro contract, he can't, but Again, this is like, <laughs> I think, I think um, you know, where the NCAA sport is at is at the highest of the highest level, these are almost pros anyway. So the fact that some people would be getting paid, I know for a fact, like I wouldn't care if I was competing in my day in D3 or D2, or if I had been in D1, if someone else was competing alongside of me who was getting paid uh, or had been paid, but now they weren't. Right, it wouldn't be that hard to make that that rule. I wouldn't care. So like, it, but the, but they could just make it that way. Like, if you, as long as you're are you as long as you are competing in the NCAA, you cannot be getting paid. Fine, keep that rule. The problem is, is when they say if you've ever been paid, you can't come back. It's like okay, all that does is create problems like this for these athletes. You know that they they lose that opportunity. And I think Mary Kane, you know, interestingly, when she was kind of right at the beginning of her setbacks, you know, as a pro runner, I remember she started taking classes. I think in Portland, and she was basically being just a totally normal college student who was also training with the Nike Oregon Project. And I just think, like, you know, I wonder if it would have been awesome if Mary Kane's career would be longer and more fruitful if at that time the NCAA had said, "Yeah, you can compete for Portland. Who cares?" You know, like, but as long as you're competing with Portland, you can't get any, um, any support from Nike. Like, I don't know. I, I just think that's the thing that I would want in a contract. I know like Adidas and Nike, they can't say that. Like it's an NCAA rule, but I think that's something that maybe should be changed. And, and honestly, how many times is it going to be utilized? How many times are you going to see an athlete who goes pro then within a, within two years quits being a pro and tries out the NCAA? It's not going to happen that much, you know, um, but if it's for the betterment of the kid, which it would be, you know, like most certainly it would be. And, and don't give me crap that like, well, what about the other kids? That's not better for them. No, it's fine. Like they're, they should all be there competing, um, you know, to try their best to be their best. So what if there's a guy who was a former pro athlete? And heck, look at this. You can have 30-year-olds 30, 30 who, have, if they've never started their window, technically they could come in. So if you really wanted to hijack the system now, you could. 
you know, tell your 18 year old when they graduate, listen, here's the, here's the game plan. We're going to take six years off. You're just going to train with mom and dad. We're going to, we're going to write out these programs for you. And then when you're 24, we're going to put you into college and you'll be fresh and eligibility will be great. You know, like I, once they start their, their five or six year clock, it starts, but you don't have to start that at 18 or 19, you know? So, I, I mean, I honestly think like, and this is nothing against BYU, but if you were getting, if you wanted to argue for being unfair about something, it's it's racing against like a twenty three year old freshman who's maybe took a gap year, was already nineteen when they graduated high school, <laughs> and then had two years of mission. Now they're coming back, they're starting their clock at twenty one, like a Casey Klinger, you know, best distance runner in high school when he was in twenty seventeen when he graduated, and now he's a freshman, he's like twenty one, you know, and that's fine. Like I'm not, saying, you know, they're they're playing by the rules, uh, no complaints. But again, like I'd actually be more upset. Um, that I'm uh, 21, I'm a senior, and I'm competing against a 27-year-old who's also a senior, I- I'd be more upset with that, you know, than, or, or at least the same amount upset as if I'm competing against that 27-year-old who once was a pro runner. I, I don't know. Like, again, I just don't think it's going to happen that often, but I think it would solve a lot of these issues for the kids to not have to kind of contemplate that. And ultimately, if we want to have it supporting. So anyway, I got to get off from skiing. But I think I think in skiing, you know, we ought to be encouraging those star high school athletes to to be in collegiate skiing. And and hopefully Team USA even is like encouraging that as much as possible. I know Chris Grover um, kind of talked about that on one of our last shows when we interviewed him. Um, he's not obviously anti-NCA. I think he mentioned kind of, you know, there, must, there might have been some sort of like differences in philosophies on certain things and i think that has to do more with they would like to see more sprints at the ncaa level which u.s ski association the the independent one aside from the ncaa i think is actually moving towards that so again i actually think the best model might be having your collegiate skiing be just separate from the ncaa so you can make rules that best help team usa and best help bridge the gap between high school athletes and that and also create an incredible pinnacle performance arena for athletes who aren't going to make Team USA. These are like D3 in cross country. Like what a fun experience to be a Division Three collegiate athlete that was for me and thousands of others because it's legit, you know, and it's, it's, it's um, the, the best athletes in D3. Yeah, you could argue a day and night if maybe they'd survive as the 15th guy at the national meet in D1. Sometimes they would, many times they wouldn't. You know, the depth isn't even comparable, uh, not even close. In fact, between D3 and D2, there's not as much depth. But the point is, there's a league there that allows for very high-level competition between athletes with a wide range of abilities. Uh, you know, because in D3, you do have guys who can run 20 minutes in the 5K, and that's the best they can do. And then there's guys like, um, you know, the guy from Carlton, Matt Wilkinson, who runs 1355. <laughs> you know, so um, Matt Wilkinson would compete in the D1 steeplechase, 844. He'd be the 10 seed, I think. Um, there's, there's things like that. Uh, and I think we don't really have that at skiing, you know, USCSA is kind of frowned upon or, or laughed at by the NCAA folks. The NCAA has like five people in it. So <laughs> yeah, great. You're all the greatest collegiate skiers in America, but there's hardly any of you, you know? And so, you know, winning a national title, winning a national title in NCAA skiing, like as a team, that's nowhere near as cool as if you won um, the NCAA basketball tournament. It's nowhere near as cool. And part of the reason is because to win basketball, you've got to beat like 400 programs. You have to really, truly survive. You know, oh, we won? What? Oh, yeah, because we're one of only three teams that have an Alpine team? Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, sweet. I get to put on the exact same shirt that they that everyone else put on. It's just, it is kind of funny. That's, that's another time for another show, like the equitableness of national champions. I always marvel at that. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about like, you know, some years, some years you'll see like the NCAA fifteen hundred meters. Let's just take that, right? It's, it's kind of the race everyone can sort of identify with the mile. Uh, there, there's some years where you've got like seven runners on the starting line, kind of like this year actually. It will be, you know, you get you got three or four runners on there who are legitimate Olympic trials, you know, potential threats, and they've run three fifty in the mile. They're 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 running world class times, and one of those people gets to to win the race and be the champion. Sometimes you get foreign athletes. You might have five or six Olympians on the starting line of the NCAA um, championship in the fifteen hundred. You know, and I look at that, and then sometimes I think about you know, yeah, 
this is not taking not knocking down at at skiers specifically, but uh, there's a, there's definitely sports, and I think there's a lot worse too. Where oh, I'm the national champion, you know, and they get like the same thing. Um, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that. I I had no shot at being a national champion, and that's I think what's kind of leaves that mystique kind of out there is it's like wow, I dedicated my life to that when I was in that realm for five years and really longer if you consider everything else. And it's like, I didn't sniff that. And I didn't even make it to a national meet. You know, like I I think you could say, you could say pretty reasonably that my running career, I didn't really even sniff the national meet, you know? And in my in my heart of hearts, I think, well, had I run the best race of my life in the fitness I had at the right time, I, I would definitely would have sniffed qualifying because I do think I could have run probably 3130 in the 10k in like a perfect scenario in the gap year that I was red shirting. Um, I think that would have been possible, but still that's that's like chump change even in the D3 ranks. like you would have been getting lapped by the by the winner even if you made it to nationals. So I think it is kind of a cool spectrum when you look at that wide range of interest, dedication, persistence does not really always match up with external results. And, you know, I think the benefit of that, though, is you you realize what the true value is in your pursuit. And I know I talked about this a lot, but it is worth repeating because I think far too often we're very deceived in, re- in thinking that all the work that we invest in something should manifest itself in an external way that's very tangible. And it really ultimately manifests itself in a way that's very intrinsic but the people who experience external success they often aren't gifted with the chance to learn about that intrinsic value so if you win everything you kind of feel like the law of retribution is kind of absolute like well i just trained harder than everyone and i was just more persistent than everyone and that's why i won and and then you never get to experience the side of the coin where you are in you you have all those attributes right persistence work ethic dedication all that but you're really either not talented enough or circumstantially it doesn't work out and you you actually just don't have the same equal equitable equal outcome i guess externally and the reality is is both of those athletes athlete a who wins everything and athlete b who wins nothing they both actually receive the same true reward but one of them realizes it one of them doesn't usually the athlete who who loses has to grasp grapple with the fact of like well what was the point of all that and and it's in that grappling where you wrestle and you de- you determine what is true and that is well, the point of all that was was absolutely to just pursue excellence because excellence itself is worth pursuing and and for me as a Christian, right, excellence itself is worth pursuing because God commands me to and because it's it's a testament to my witness. If if I'm the Bible says that I, I should be doing all things as if I'm working for the Lord, if I believe that's true, then it would follow that I would give supreme effort to be excellent in whatever I'm doing, whether I'm washing the dishes, cleaning the floor, or training for cross-country skiing. If I don't believe that's true, it would follow that I could be sloppy in my job, in how I wash the dishes, or in how I train. So to me, part of the motivating factor of like being a nobody who still goes out and tries to train 1,100 hours or you know care about fitness or do all those things, yeah, it's fun. But like, I want someone to go, what is with that guy? Why does that guy pursue excellence at such a high level? He doesn't have a monetary validation that's coming from that. He's not getting paid to do that. Like, what is the motivation from? Well, dude, I've got a way stronger source of purpose and motivation than any of that. My motivation is coming from the fact that I'm working for my Savior. That you can't possibly um, quench that f- or, or put out that flame. And it's, it's interesting. When I talk to athletes, like, you can identify their why, right? Everyone always talks about their why. And for me, it's always like, I mean, cool. Like, I'm glad you got a purpose that's outside of skiing. But that could easily be extinguished because of X, Y, Z. Oh, I care about these other um, organizations or these other um, there's these there's these other uh, things that are are motivating me to be a great skier. These other callings out there that I ski for that, that keep me going. They're kind of my why. You know what? The only thing worthy of a why is God. 
He's the only thing worthy of that level of worship. And, you know, the other thing is, he's the only thing that's going to sustain you through truly challenging times. Yes, are there athletes who have made it through without God as their why? Sure, there are. But that's not going to stand at the end of time because it's not an eternal purpose. So it's going to be meaningless once they're dead and gone. Not, not meaningless in the sense that their impact won't be felt by others. It'll be meaningless in light of eternity. So, yes, the work that they do, it's going to benefit people. It's going to help them. But in light of eternity, the ages and ages past, thousands and thousands of years in time, that's not going to be, that's not going to be, it's not going to matter in light of eternity because it's not, it's not an eternal purpose. We've gotten way too deep on this. But uh, anyway, I, I just find that interesting as I look back at my athletic career. I also think about other people, other athletes who, who have won a lot and experienced great external success, which is the very thing that is driving guys like me too to be better. Like I utilize those external motivations, make it to nationals, win a national title, right? Those things were all there in place in the competitive sphere. They just weren't the end all be all. Um, but when you win those things, you never learn that they aren't the end all be all. So that's something I think, uh, some, something to consider. I guess with that, it's hard to determine if I should call this a Skiologians episode or a Cedar Skier podcast episode. A ski, we'll, we'll decide. We'll post it up. But I uh, hope you enjoyed this show. We'll see you later on this week. I'm hoping to get out something that will help us dissect the NCAA championships. But if not, we'll just kind of recap it and look ahead to the Olympic trials. That's kind of the next big thing on the docket. So uh, hopefully you're getting out there. Hopefully you're enjoying your day. Uh, and I know I can't even say I can't end the show with like get out there and ski. Um, maybe if you live in Alaska and you're listening to us or Norway or something, you still are able to do that. If so, good on you. Otherwise, everyone else, uh, keep striving. <laughs>